I'm Stephen Crafty, and I'm here with architect Jared Haverfield, one of three directors of Molecule, a new uh, practice based in Melbourne. And we're here at RMIT University, and this is our regular program, Talking Design. So I'm here with Jared. Jared, I first uh, came across, oh, would have been a year ago or so, and he kindly offered his house um, for one of my architectural tours. And everyone still talks about the house, and they said, oh, why don't you show us another house like that one? And I always tell people, look, I don't just have those houses up my sleeve. It was a house that was featured in a design magazine, and it was a, it is, well, they've, um, Jared's since moved on, but it was a Victorian house that had been uh, renovated, and he worked with um, BE Architecture on the project, or they started the project, and Jared was heavily involved in that. And uh, he's from Auckland. He's... Um, He's an interesting um, guy, and he's um, he's starting his he's just started his own practice. So I thought I'd introduce um, Jared, ask about some of his projects, and find out what makes him tick. Hi, Jared. Hi. How are you? Good. Great. So tell me, you studied in Auckland, New Zealand. That's right. So there are three schools of architecture in New Zealand: two in Auckland, one in Wellington, and so I'm a graduate from the Unitech Institute of Technology, as are my two co-directors. So the three of us met while we were studying, and that was kind of the birth of the, the big molecule dream, which has been then kind of a decade in the making. Tell me a little bit about New Zealand architecture and, and the difference or design scene in New Zealand as opposed to Melbourne, because it would have been slightly different coming over and establishing a practice here. Very different. The... The big difference, I think, with with the leading architects in New Zealand is that typically they tend to work on retreat houses. So the architecture that is best known from New Zealand tends to exist on clifftops or um, in beautiful natural forest. And so there's always this deference to the view or the landscape. And it's much more rare. Um, it's not that it never happens, but it's much more rare to see very good work being done in an urban context. And so... There's a real interest um, for us at Molecule to be dealing with houses that are much more interested in um, in the role of a neighbourhood or a precinct, um, how good design might happen when you're dealing with density, the, the sorts of issues that you deal with when you're doing a pristine glass box on a clifftop with a view of the horizon. They're a very different set of um, difficulties that you have to um, try and deal with, and sometimes we find that... Um, it's pretty easy sometimes to end up with an architecture that um, feels like the Emperor's New Clothes, where there's a lot of effort that goes into finding solutions that maybe don't um, don't change the world by any great degree. And so I guess we, the three of us, have all been very fortunate to live in lots of wonderful cities around the world, and we're very interested in cities. We're thrilled to have um, found a new home, I guess, in Melbourne. I've been here for six years. Anya Despar and Richard Fleming have both lived here and in Rotterdam, London, Amsterdam. Yeah. I've lived in Paris, Dusseldorf, Setogenbosch. Yeah. So we've been very fortunate to live in some really great Western yeah. European cities and we are loving the um, the intensity that comes from working in a more urban environment. Jared, I mean, it sounds a bit, you know, coy, but you know, what's the difference between, you know, Melbourne and Auckland? I mean, what's, how do you... 
The if you were to generalise, we would always say that Auckland is to Wellington what Sydney is to Melbourne. So the general sense, and this sounds very anti-Auckland, which it isn't, yeah. but the general sense is that Auckland is geographically a very blessed city. It sits between two harbours. Yeah. The climate's fantastic. Everyone has a boat. Um, life in Auckland is pretty good, but there is a general um, distrust of the city and the role that it plays. And so people don't go out in the city. Um, the central city, the central business district, is absolutely desolate, sort of after business hours and certainly in the weekends. Things are starting to change in that mm. regard now, I think. Mm. But certainly at the time that we all left in 2005, Queen Street, which is our Swanston Street, would be absolutely deserted from sort of 6pm mm. onwards. And you know, by the time you got to Sunday, you could almost have tumbleweed kind of mm. blowing through. So... Um, there are things about Auckland that are wonderful, and and those are the climate and the geography and the lifestyle. All of those things are great, but there the hasn't been in the past, and as I say, I think that's starting to change now, a real passion around urbanity and, and the, um, the really wonderful things that living in close proximity and working in close proximity with others might present. And okay. I think there's a nostalgia in that, which is starting to change as New Zealand matures a little bit, where... Most of my generation grew up on sort of quarter acre blocks yeah. still, and there is this sense that any time that your patch of land is decreased from that, that somehow you're missing out or um, that it's some kind of an affront to your mm-hmm. sort of your personal life. Jared, I was going to ask you, what's, what are some of the challenges of starting up a practice? Oh, I mean, goodness. it's hard enough starting up a practice in your hometown, yes. but starting up a practice in Melbourne, which, you know, there are a lot of architectural practices, they're all, you know, vying for the same mm. uh, commissions. How challenging is it? And, and what do you think you offered or what do you think Molecule offers that perhaps other practices don't offer? I think for us, there's a huge freedom that comes from operating in a city where you weren't educated. I know if we had all stayed in Auckland, there's a hierarchy that's established already when you've been um, in a tutor-student relationship, where then when you enter the profession, that hierarchy still exists. Mm. And so there is this sort of, um, there is this pastoral sense of the senior members of that community still somehow... um, get the major gigs. Yes, and they're sort of overlooking your work and they're proud if you get something built and it can all still feel a little bit there seems to be a mechanism that kind of keeps you down to size. We've loved coming here and being freed of that having, I guess, a series of interests that might be different to a lot of architects who are trained locally because we don't come from a Melbourne school or an RMIT school or a Monash school so there's probably a difference in our priorities but also, importantly, I think there's an objectivity and an ease of critique that happens when you're dealing in a context that's not yours. So for us to work in a city and um, and to not have lost the ability to really see what you're dealing with, mm-hmm. what's good about it that's easily taken for granted if it's a hometown, and also what's bad about it that is easily... Um, you can easily black that stuff out after a while, I think, if it's where you've always been. So hopefully we've, we've got a freshness. And also we've got a lot at stake. We've, we've moved away from um, our extended families and all of our history, all of our networks, because we want to live in a city that we're passionate about and that's something that feels like it's more in line with our own beliefs about urbanity. So it's been a great start for us. Now, the other thing that's interesting about your practice is it's, it's not purely architectural. You look at the broader arts program so yes. you're interested in art interior design the decorative arts and you look at the whole interior not just 
handing it over to someone else and saying, look, you, you put in the cushions and the tassels. <laughs> Not that you do that, because I know you don't. But what is it about having that holistic approach, Jared? Look, I think for all of us, um, you know, there's, there's an interesting commonality with Anya and Richard and me where we've always been critical, I think, of architecture that's often treated as too pristine an object where um, it's this thing that the architect somehow by a miracle um, has a master stroke, this kind of moment of inspiration and the building is completed and then the architect abdicates and then it's up to the occupant to somehow try and fit their life into that or figure out um, how they sort of live in it. Mm. And I think we are all very interested in domesticity. We love the role that home plays in our lives. We think that the role of home continues to be of huge importance as life gets busier and cities get fuller and that doesn't have to be proportionate to square footage or square meterage but there is something about the way in which a home environment might be tailored to its occupants that we're really inspired by so we don't think that ends at the point that the contractor finishes their work um, in fact, often that feels like about the halfway point or the two-thirds point because then there are all of the other considerations about how all of people's objects, which are really important, you know, if you're Buddhist, you can live without those things, but most people aren't. And I think that if someone's passionate about a piece of furniture or a piece of art or a collection of ceramics or, you know, mm. an antique mannequin or whatever, those things need to be really well considered and integrated into the home because that is in the end the experience of that space okay. and very quickly when the house is furnished and fitted out a lot of the details that architects spend a lot of time on almost disappear into the background and you still end up you know the first thing that you typically notice when you walk into a living room is the sofa and if that's a terrible sofa then that will be your yeah. first experience of the room regardless of the way that the natural light might fall on a wall the other thing i was going to ask you um jared in terms of um uh architecture and I think it's a very important point is that your practice is very much service driven. Yes. You seem to be very attentive to all your clients' needs and tend to follow up. It's something that I've noticed and I hear comments all the time from architects saying, look, we love their work but we didn't we found the communication was very difficult. Mm -hmm. We that they they didn't get back to us or we had to keep reminding them. Is it something that architects just don't feel they have to deal with? I think partly it's professional and mostly it's personal. So I think if you're someone who really enjoys working with people, then um, then it doesn't feel natural to not include them in the process. And because most of our work is private, we are dealing with people's lives and their money and it doesn't feel appropriate to us to um, be treating the house like it's ours until it's finished and then we kind of hand it over like some mm -hmm. gift that they're lucky to be on the receiving end of. So we absolutely love the process of working with clients. We tend to, any time that we are taking a project through a design process, we work much more with clients in a workshop environment rather than a presentation environment. We try to avoid that advertising kind of typology where mm -hmm. you try to sell the idea mm -hmm. and then it's up to the client to buy it or not. Mm. We're much more interested in... Um, in exposing clients to that incredibly difficult and joyful and challenging and rewarding process of making a building. And our experience is that on completion of that building, the sense of ownership that the clients mm -hmm. have is so much greater because they've been involved in a lot of those decisions. And I think that's really critical. We love dealing with good people. Mm -hmm. And we've always said that we would prefer to um, structure the molecule brand around a client type than a project type so we'll have a go with um with anything from mm -hmm. a piece of furniture to um to a huge 
you know, huge house. Jared, do you tend to know how far to push clients? Like if you see someone who comes into your practice and says, I want something contemporary, when you know in the back of their mind they want something faux French, uh, is it difficult to turn that client round and give them something contemporary? Or do you just say, look, maybe it's better if you go and see someone else? Or how do you tend to work? I think it's really important to be honest about whether there's a match. If there isn't, um, like any relationship, you just end up failing each other's tests whether or not you knew that you were sitting them. So I think you end up with a contentious relationship because it's just not a meeting of minds. We have been fortunate to not have that um, happen to date. We think that clear communication is really a big part of how that of how that process runs. So we typically would never put an idea in front of a client without some kind of supporting um preamble and we use a lot of diagramming in the early stages so of the if, design if, process. If you see they're kind of squirming in their chair in anything you show them you tend to say look maybe if they did someone did approach yes. you then you would say look perhaps we're not the right match. Absolutely. What we've also found is that if you I think architects very often in their need to get their own way because often it is there is this funny adversarial relationship mm. where it's architect versus client which I've never quite understood but we often find that if you don't go to the extent of making an ambit claim where you're suggesting something that's miles outside of their comfort zone in the hope that when they pull it back that you might still sort of get somewhere, we find it's better just to to be realistic and sensitive to um, to their requirements and their tastes and those things and then explain the validity of an approach. Mm-hmm. And often then, um, if the if the conversation is... is um, around something that isn't quite working for them, through having that conversation you get to know the person better. I mean, that's the that's the particular thing about doing houses and, and workspaces for people is that you have to know them pretty well. Jared, do you think in these times that the architect has become starchitect and that, you know, it's the fact that, you know, an arch- you know some architects or many architects now are considered uh, that, they, that they're not malleable enough mm. and or flexible enough to actually say, look, is that actually the client's house? It's not about them. Yes. Look, we're highly critical of that. It's the reason that our practice is called Molecule and, and not our surnames. Not that Dispar Fleming Haberfield has a particularly good ring to it. Um, but... We we feel very strongly that there's a mythology out there that's being supported um, in the media and in the public perception that architects um, are these sort of inspired geniuses who mm. kind of swan in and have a brilliant idea mm. and and then leave and that we're all lucky that they were involved and we're trying to be absolutely the opposite of that. And um, we know how many people it takes to make a building and in the same way that we don't like to work adversarially with clients, we don't like to work adversarially with our contractors because, in the end, the realisation of any of our ideas is in their hands. So to work with builders when their input is valued and when their hard work is acknowledged seems really critical to us because we don't get an idea across unless the client owns it mm-hmm. and we don't get a good building unless the contractor owns it. And so we try to have a really anti architect approach um, because even with quite a simple building, there's a whole mm. lot of input from mm. lots of people who know things that we don't, and we love that process. Um, the other thing I was going to, um, talking of um, French chateaus, um, you've recently purchased a such a, a house, <laughs> and um, we don't have to mention the architect, but I was surprised when you told me what you bought and you were going to 
renovate it because it's something that uh, you know I just couldn't imagine doing myself. <laughs> but it's an interesting story. You've you've bought a very you know cookie cutter um, French chateau inspired house, and you're turning the inside literally on its head. You're redoing the whole thing and making it very contemporary. I think that's an amazing story because usually I drive past these houses and you know I, I'm just not interested in opening the front door. What drove that Jared? Oh look um, there's a few things I guess going on there. I was talking before about the objectivity that one has mm. operating in a context that's not their home or their hometown so for me there are suburbs in this city that are absolutely remarkable in, in the architectural typology that exists there they tend to be the more expensive suburbs in the city and I haven't seen those sorts of buildings being delivered anywhere else and so I guess there's an interest in what happens if you take a neoclassical or a historical idiom and then critique it not only in that superficial way that's very easy to do so so mostly modern architects look at um look at that um look there's all sorts of pejorative terms mm. people call them vanilla slices and um mm. the kardashians and all sorts mm. of other ways that you might talk about um the the neoclassical <laughs> work but i think if you then take it beyond face value and you think what are the what are the things that these sorts of buildings do present that's positive mm. i think that there is a quality to the spaces often that's not found in more modern architecture mm -hmm. and materiality in terms of materiality you know they're expensive buildings mostly because mm. they they're flawlessly constructed mm. and they're all solid masonry and so there's there are things going for them at the point that you've got mouldings that come off a truck already mm. um you know already made and then they go onto the facade with mm. liquid nails and they're rendered over those things are mm. less easy to love of course mm. um columns that aren't holding anything up there's a lot of that stuff there you know there's phds at every turn i think but what we have done in the case of this house um is said okay even though this building is new it's trying to look like it was built in the 1800s let's treat it like it was and then let's um, let's intervene in a way that any modern architect would to make the space feel exciting and I guess to play off that contrast of um, of a classical idiom and then kind of inserting a more modern sort of treatment inside and I guess there are some good examples around the world of wonderful old um, classical buildings yes you know Paris Milan mm. um, lots of you know there are beautiful little private hotels mm. going up in Mayfair and places mm. like that where the um, the Georgian or the whatever that era was of the building building is then being treated in a way that's not subversive but there's certainly a commentary and so the, the inspiration for this project has been a hotel that Philippe Stark and his team recently reworked in Paris called Le Maurice which is a wonderful be going there know, shortly wonderful <laughs> um, that is a building that was built as a hotel um, which for its era is uncommon and you know that was done in the 1800s and in in Stark's typical way he has basically taken that idiom and then kind of twisted it so he's still doing gilt furniture but he's upholstering things with cowhide and you know there were there was a fresco on the ceiling which has been replaced now by this incredible mural a Dali inspired mural that his daughter has painted and he's done that in a few cases he's done it with furniture as well um, when he did the Hudson Hotel in New York he took the Amico Navy chair and again re kind of um, recast that did that in a mirror polished aluminium and um, so I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of fertility in 
taking something that is from history and then working with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's been our approach, is that even though this is not this is a new building, we've treated it like it's old, mm-hmm. and then we've tried to sort of make an intervention. And I think it coincides with the time in interior design and furniture design, which is also interested in retelling classical stories. So mm-hmm. um, there are pieces of furniture that we're putting into the house that are part of that um, part of that school, I guess. Mm-hmm. So Marcel Vonders at Moy is typically very interested in taking things from a historical context and re-spinning them. So his smoke chair, which is in our foyer, um, you know, the smoke chair is the one that's been burnt. Correct. Isn't it? Yeah. So, burnt, so the he, timbers burnt. Correct. So he takes um, he takes a historical chair, mm-hmm. um, and then it's turned to charcoal, and then it's sealed, and then it's upholstered with this incredible matte leather, and. You know, there's a big interest at the moment in chandeliers that aren't chandeliers. And so I guess we are just trying to, um, we're exploring what it might be like. Jared, what was the most frustrating thing about working with a building like that in terms of what can't be changed or you you really had to wrestle with to really remove it? So I think the... um, the role of the threshold, so passing through a doorway, has become a much more powerful... Um, experience in a building like this because um, we're talking you know we talk a lot with this particular project about the foyer having to um, elicit some kind of an Alice in Wonderland experience where you walk up to a building which feels completely predictable and known particularly for its suburb because we're in Turak and then that you pass through the door and suddenly you're kind of thrown into this unexpected world and so trying to reconcile um, a predictable exterior and a less predictable interior has been a really interesting trying to get that pitch right because there's one thing um, working in a way that's unpredictable and there's another mm. way if you push it too far where it can sort of be shocking and actually a bit too subversive yeah it is a fine line i no mean I, I think people uh when they you know they obviously look through magazines and they see how people put things together but there is a fine line between uh and that balance right between contemporary and old yes and if you go too far it can look cartoonish no question and i think that's a part of our interest in working um in houses i mean we um there are a lot of these houses in the city and i think typically the sorts of interiors that are put into them are absolutely faithful to the exterior treatment Mm -hmm. and so you have a building that presents itself as a chateau and then you walk inside and it's you know the chateau remains Mm. and so we're more interested in that wonderful experience that you get if you stay in a good boutique hotel in Paris or in Milan or anywhere mm. like that where you have some kind of, you know, when you have an, um, an exterior from a couple of hundred years ago and then you mm. come inside and everything's been sort of spun. The other thing is you've done a, a, an interesting doctor surgery recently, which I'm very eager to look at. And most people, when they go to the doctors, they're usually greeted with pretty blank mm. uh, foyer and doors leading to the you know the way to you know each individual office tell me about this project this new surgery well it's been an absolutely thrilling project for us because we had a client who was very happy to be taken um, somewhere that was unexpected um, I spoke before about us always having an interest in a client type rather than a project type and being happy to work at a project of any scale and um, We had this wonderful paediatrician come to us. She had bought a Victorian shop top in South Melbourne and was planning to live above a surgery. She's just relocated here from Tasmania and had an incredibly interesting brief, a very humanist brief, we felt. Um, Her belief was that at the point that parents are taking children to a paediatrician, they're having a difficult time. 
and rather than um, giving them the expected sort of play centre aesthetic that most paediatric clinics have, she wanted something that felt more like a spa. So it was much more relaxing um, and felt much more considered and um, and calmed the children down rather than... What does it look like, Jared? Well, we've used a lot of ply. Um, look, it's lovely, I think. We're absolutely thrilled with it. As, um, but if people as walk in, how, how, instead of getting the, the usual reception desk, what... So, um, well, look, what we've done, because we don't have much width in a, in a Victorian shop, we decided that rather than, because there needed to be a consulting room somehow fitted into the space, and so rather than constructing just an expected sort of plasterboard wall, what we've done is basically separated the space into a public space and the consulting space using this very deep wall, completely constructed of ply, with a series of openings from each side, and so it offers storage on on um, on both sides, partly to the reception and partly to the consulting room. But it's got a very strong, um, very strong presence in the space. And so you read it as an insertion. It deliberately separates itself from the building, and um, and then you pass through this deep wall, and then you're sort of in this inner sanctuary, which to date. Um, it's just working absolutely wonderfully. You know, um, she's really noticed a huge difference in the way that parents are arriving in front of her, the behaviour of the children, mm-hmm. the ease with which she can examine the children. So we couldn't be happier. It's a really exciting Why is it that people don't look outside the square when they're designing traditional fit-outs like mm. a, you know, a, a doctor's practice or a dentist's practice? Why is it that we're, we're so stuck into a certain model about what things should look like? I think it's a lack of curiosity. So I guess we would start any project. So we started this project by saying, you know, what is mm. what is a doctor's clinic? What is it? Um, what does it need to be? What could it be? And I think as soon as you start questioning a typology, then you have a chance of sort of recasting it. And certainly, we're not trying to be innovative just um, for its own sake mm. or to its own end. But we are interested in um, in being critical of a whole lot of expected um, solutions when either people have relied on um, the way that other people have done things um, as sort of the precedent, or when time's short or money doesn't want to be spent. I think there are a lot of reasons that that the known entity gets used. And I guess that's why having great clients is such an important part of the process for us, because we need to um, have people that are involved who are happy in some way to sponsor the investigation of an idea. Look, Jared, we have to wrap up now, unfortunately. I, um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. You're welcome. And uh, look forward to seeing and seeing more projects by Molecule. And, um, yeah, thanks, thanks again. Been a pleasure. You've Thank been you. with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks very much for joining us. Mm-hmm.